In the consult, we discuss cases that are sexually violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to The Consult. I'm Julia Cowley, retired FBI agent and profiler and former special agent forensic scientist with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. And here with me is... I'm Bob Drew. I also was with the FBI and was down in the behavioral analysis unit as a profiler. Prior to that, I was a police officer for 12 years in the state of New Hampshire. This podcast is about criminal profiling. Both solved and unsolved cases will be discussed and behavior exhibited before, during, and after the commission of a criminal act will be examined. For listeners, you will also be participating in the consult because as the facts, circumstances, and evidence of these cases are presented, you will be examining, evaluating, and interpreting the behavior along with us. And you will not always agree with us, and we will not always agree with each other, because behavioral analysis is not an exact science. No, it's not. And it's important. It's an important tool for investigators, but it by no means replaces solid investigation, nor does it trump physical evidence for being the best evidence. It is, however, an important tool, and investigators can use it and combine it with their skill and their knowledge of the case to really enhance their investigation. Today, Bob and I will be talking about the serial burglar, rapist, and killer Joe D'Angelo, who terrorized California in the 1970s and 80s. This was a case Bob and I worked on when we were in the behavioral analysis unit. And D'Angelo was responsible for upwards of 45 sexual assaults and 13 homicides. And despite all his crimes, he really flew under the radar. I believe it was true crime author Michelle McNamara who described the unknown offender as the most prolific serial killer that nobody knew about. And this was in large part because his crimes weren't conclusively linked together until 2001 when DNA analysis connected the sexual assaults in Sacramento and Northern California to the homicides in Southern California. Adding to the confusion were all the different names he was known by. The East Area Rapist, Original Night Stalker, Diamond Knot Killer, and finally, it was Michelle McNamara who dubbed him the Golden State Killer in an article she wrote for LA Magazine in 2013. In 2018, he was identified as a suspect through forensic genetic genealogy and confirmed the Golden State Killer by DNA analysis. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Office arrested him in April of 2018, and he was living in the Sacramento area in one of the same neighborhoods he had stalked and terrorized so many years earlier. When they brought him into court, D'Angelo was in a wheelchair, his mouth was gaping open, and he looked like a very feeble and confused old man. And I think the public was surprised by his appearance, but we were not, were we? No, 
And I think part of why people were surprised was because their interpretation of who this person would be, would be someone quite different than the personality that Julia and I assessed or profiled to be his. I think they thought that either he was acting or faking, or that something quite significant had happened to him, either psychologically or or physically or all of the above, that would have to explain this big departure in what their original perception of him was and how he ended up being perceived during his court appearances. We were not surprised because it was not such a big contrast to who we had profiled to, to have done the crimes years earlier. And we're going to go over his crimes in detail, discuss the behavior he exhibited while committing his crimes, and what that told us about his personality traits and characteristics. But first, I'd like to explain that the Behavioral Analysis Unit gets involved at the request of the investigative agencies. We don't take over the investigation. It's their case. It remains their case. And any analysis or assessment we provide, they can take it or leave it. In this case, the Sacramento Division of the FBI, along with the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, requested assistance from us in 2011, so it was approximately 25 years since the last known homicide attributed to this offender. And they did have his DNA, and we all knew that was the key to solving this case. But they had a potential suspect list with 8,000 names on it. So a profile of the unknown offender might help in prioritizing suspects or linking cases together by behavior that didn't have DNA, or perhaps developing an interview strategy for once the suspect was arrested. Let's go over the sexual assaults now. From June 1976 to July 1979, Joe D'Angelo broke into homes and raped women in the Sacramento area as well as the East Bay area of Northern California. 45 cases were submitted to us for analysis. In these sexual assault cases, there was very little variation in the offender's behavior. He would break into the residences through unlocked doors and windows, or he would pry open locked doors and windows. On occasion, he might break a window and reach through to unlock the doors. In a few cases, investigators believed he actually entered the residences prior and unlocked a window in preparation for returning later. We noted he was a very skilled burglar. He demonstrated some preparation, some proficiency, not only in planning, but in actually executing these entrances into homes and minimized his chances of being surprised, etc., such as maybe entering a home prior to his actual contact with any victim, just to make sure, see if there are any other occupied bedrooms that he didn't know about. He definitely was prepared for who he was going to encounter when he went in those homes, right. whether it be by surveillance or actual entrance into the home. He always entered late at night or early morning, surprising the victims often while they were sleeping. He'd wake them up by shining a flashlight in their eyes to temporarily blind them, He'd repeatedly threatened victims with a knife or gun, and he would tell them that if they moved or made a sound, he would kill them. In some cases, he threatened to cut off the ears and fingers of the female victims, and if there were children in the home, he threatened to do the same to the kids. 
He always tied up the victims, binding their hands behind their backs and binding their feet. He often used shoelaces, which he either brought with him or removed from the victim's shoes. On other occasions, he used rope or twine. When he first began these sexual assaults in the Sacramento area, he entered homes when only females were present. However, on April 2, 1977, he attacked a female-male couple for the first time. At this time, there had been 14 reported attacks on females only. But going forward, attacking female-male couples remained his M.O. When he victimized couples, he engaged in very similar behavior as those displayed in the earlier assaults of only females. He'd awaken them with a flashlight and threaten to kill them. He'd order the female victim to bind her male companion. He would then bind the female after which he would retie the male. He placed fragile objects, such as dishes or cups and saucers, on the backs of the male victims, telling them that if they moved, he'd hear the items fall and he would return to kill them. The offender always wore a mask and also blindfolded or covered his victims' faces with items such as clothing, towels, or blankets. He put a great deal of effort into preventing the victims from seeing him. In all of the cases, the offender told the victims he was there to rob them. He demanded money and jewelry. He demanded to know where the female victim's purse was located. He also often asked where the drugs or medications were, and he'd say things like, where are the drugs? I need a fix. Victims reported hearing him eating and gulping food and purportedly swallowing the pills. The gulping of food loud enough so they could hear him the mentioning that he needed a fix. These are things which we'll come back to, but they don't serve any practical purpose for his crime, either of his crimes, either entering the the residence, theft, or sexual assaults. None of those things were facilitated by that. And that's one important impression which we come back to. None of those actions were necessary. It was almost for show. And it was unnecessary for the crime he was supposedly there to commit. Home invasion, sexual assault. That's it. And oftentimes when we look at a crime, we look at whether the individual's motivation to engage in behavior is either practical for the purposes of committing a crime or as an expression of his personality or perhaps a fantasy that's at play. Everything from portraying himself as someone who was addicted to drugs to ransacking homes without necessarily taking anything, to having the female victim bind the male victim, you're getting into things that aren't really efficient or practical, particularly having them bind the male, but he ended up going back and rebinding. That's another point which we'll return to when we talk about behavior, but that is something that we noted when we were going over the cases. If he were going to go back and redo the bindings and perhaps several times, but certainly he did not just leave the binding that the woman had placed and was not confident that those would would serve his practical purposes. You have to wonder then why he took that extra step. The time in a home is high exposure for being apprehended, being hurt, perhaps being killed. Why would you extend your time that's redundant and that is not really going to be efficient or facilitate your crime? And we return to that when we assess his behavior. Bob, you mentioned the ransacking, and I'd like to point out that in all the cases, 
Before committing any sexual assault, he ransacked their homes. And in addition to the exaggerated gulping sounds he made when he was supposedly eating or drinking, he moved throughout their homes very loudly opening and closing drawers and cabinets. He often spent several hours in the victim's homes, leaving evidence of his ransacking scattered all about. Additionally, in cases where female victims were raped multiple times, he ransacked the house in between each sexual assault. What we were noticing as we were reading uh, reports related to the crimes or when we went to consult with the law enforcement folks was that there were a lot of these behaviors that were unnecessary, that were even were potentially detrimental either to him getting away with what he was doing or at very least unnecessary. And one of the things was his was his verbal interaction with them. On many occasions, he boasted or offered information about himself. Absolutely under no circumstances does that facilitate his crimes. In fact, if any part of that were true, it would be very detrimental to him getting away with the crimes and not being apprehended. Particularly because he tried so hard to hide his identity. Yes. Really, I mean, went to great lengths. He, he blinded the victims with the flashlight. He put blindfolds over their heads. He wore a ski mask. He disguised his voice. Often the victims would say he was talking with clenched teeth and trying to sound much tougher than he was. So offering up this information, potentially personal information about himself, was in contradiction to his attempts to hide his identity. Our suspicions were that where he displayed some, some real sophistication in burglary and where we kind of assessed him as being at least of average intelligence, if not a little bit higher than that, that this was, this was strange behavior that didn't help him. For instance, boasting about himself sexually or claiming these things about himself or putting on a voice that would lead someone to have an impression of him. We're probably, you know, we're suspecting as we hear this, that this is probably serving the purpose either to mislead the victims as far as his identity went, or perhaps it was an impression that he wanted them to have of him. He was manipulating the impression they had of him. And I think that's, that's something that we noted as the crimes were described to us, and it was somewhat of a continual theme. In terms of his attempts to minimize risk... In addition to what we've already noted, the offender always told the victim he was there to rob them. Victims were more likely to comply if they believed they were only being robbed, give him what he wants and he'll leave, than if they knew his true intent. And when there was a male present, he always separated the female from the male and took her to another room to sexually assault her. He never raped a woman when her male companion was in the same room. Further, Male victims reported he would return several times to check their bindings, and he would sometimes tie additional bindings around their wrists and ankles. It was obsessive. Every time he checked the male, he'd press the knife or gun to them and threaten them with death if they moved or made a sound. And as you mentioned, Bob, he offered personal information. He made references to being in the military and bragged about his sexual conquests while in the army. In fact, because of these claims, many investigators believed he was in the military at the time, and that explained why his crimes spanned California. They thought he was being transferred from military base to military base. Another thing that was weird, that's a technical term, 
And I remember being in your office talking to you about this one particular case in which the victim reported there were some kids outside her house and they were making noise. This unnerved him and he kept going back to the window to look outside and he did this over and over again. And you were questioning, why is he doing that? Why is he so concerned with some kids making noise? He's got a knife and a gun. Yes. And I think this is where what's starting to be sort of foreshadowed as far as our eventual profile and about his personality and our interpretation of that personality is the he has a, a, a need for control. And I think, you know, at a very superficial glance, uh, people might assume that that need for control is because he's a very controlling, dominant person. And so this is just in continuation of how his, how his life has been. And he is, he is just that type of person that if he enters a room, he's a dominant person. And yet when you look at the, the worry of returning to the male victim numerous times, worried that he's going to escape his bindings, when you look at him going to the window and there are kids outside and he just can't relax because he's worried, that, that tells almost the opposite story, that someone who does that is very concerned potentially about a confrontation where he would not have control and would not have an upper hand. And it didn't have to be an adult male who was aware that he was committing a crime. It, was, it could be a group of teenage boys out on a corner. It didn't matter. It, the idea that he would be confronted by someone who was physically capable was scary enough. And that doesn't give you an indication of someone who is a dominant person who is very confident in themselves physically. And both you and I noticed that throughout the narratives of, of all the crimes as being a, a kind of a common theme. In the midst of all of these sexual assaults going on, there were, there were two things that happened during this crime wave, one of them being the attempted murder of a young man named Rodney Miller. And he was at home with his father and they heard a prowler in the backyard. They go out, they see a man, they chase him. And the prowler jumps a fence and falls down. Just as Rodney's going over the fence, the prowler shoots Rodney and then he shoots at Rodney's father, but misses. And Rodney lived. So we saw that. And then on February 2nd of 1978, it was approximately 9 p.m., and he shoots and kills a young couple, newlyweds, Brian and Katie Maggiore, and they were out walking their dog. And they were found in the backyard of a house, and it was located right in the area where all these sexual assaults were happening. And investigators believed it was connected to the rapist because a pair of shoelaces was also found in the backyard. The belief was that the Maggiore's, and Brian in particular, confronted the offender when he saw that he was prowling and potentially peeping in windows. And people who knew uh, Brian said he was the type of person who likely would have confronted someone. He was a sergeant in the Air Force, and he was with the security police, and he very likely would have done that. And Brian ends up getting shot at close range in the upper chest. And then Katie was shot in the top of her head at close range. So we have these two incidents that occur. And again, the thought might be, wow, he's very brave. 
look at how he handled these two situations. But that's not how I saw it at all. And I think, Bob, you would agree with me. Right. What we saw were people who were not bound, who had the element of surprise on him. He did not have the advantage of surprise, was not able to disable them. In fact, in the first case with Rodney Miller and his dad, you have an 18-year-old physically um, able young man chasing him. He runs. Now, he is armed with a weapon, but he does not take control there. This frightens him, and he runs away. The dad and Rodney are chasing him. He runs away, and he stumbles. And at that point, as Rodney is climbing the fence, who would be the first one to actually have physical contact with him, he shoots him. And then he shoots at his father as well. Again, what this struck both you and I, Julia, is that this is somebody who is frightened to death of a confrontation with a capable, unbound adult, someone who is competent, someone who is challenging his control. This was very frightening to the point where he would kill them. I would argue that the quick escalation of the ultimate physical force is not because of confidence. It's because of fear and insecurity. And he does not know how things will go if he has to physically confront someone. He can't take that chance. And it's not, it goes beyond just not wanting to be apprehended. And then you see that in the second case with the couple. And he has, who is described as a physically capable, confident male protecting his newlywed wife to competent adult individuals thinking about the same thing, you know, mitigating exposure of danger with this man. And again, this is, they're not bound. They are working in coordination in all likelihood against his efforts and he can't handle it. And rather than attempt to bind the husband and then do his, what he would do and say within a home and bind the wife and sexually assault her, et cetera, he departs from that and just kills them because this is not how, this is not a scenario that is attractive to him. It is not one that where he feels like he is in control and he, he has to escape it. He has to stop that from happening. That's it for this episode of The Consult. Please join us next week as we continue our discussion of the serial burglar, rapist, and murderer, Joseph James D'Angelo. This episode of The Consult was written and produced by me, Julia Cowley. The show was edited and mixed by Mike Aris, and the music was composed by John Hansky. If you'd like to learn more, please visit the Consult website at www.truecrimeconsult.com. That's www.truecrimeconsult.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the Consult Pod. Thank you for listening.